on today's episode of Gathering the Kings. I'll take a good person that's trying and try to find a fit rather than somebody who's cocky and not a good team player who's competent. You are listening to Gathering the Kings with Chaz Wolf, featuring fellow seven, eight, and even nine-figure business owners who have real battle scars from business and life, but have prevailed as the king that they are designed to be. We welcome high-performing entrepreneurs to the stage in order to reveal the real of the real on what it takes to build a successful business today. We dissect the good and bad decisions they've made along the way that give a true and accurate picture of the journey of success and how you too can get there. Through this dialogue, you will learn the value of growing your network and surrounding yourself with power players and kings like today's guest. Grab your pen and notebook because we're about to dive in. What's up, everybody? I'm Chaz Wolf, Gathering the Kings podcast. I've got Bob Lovinger here on the King stage. Bob, how are you doing, brother? Hey, Chaz. Great. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to be here. I'm excited that you're having me. I am excited that we're having you as well because you just already made my Monday, man. We were just talking off stage. You said that you got a little curious and you checked out the pod. You've been listening to it before you jumped on here. And you just totally oh, made I love my day, the pod. So I appreciate that. I love the podcast. I have such great stories. Everybody has a unique perspective on things, and it's a great, a great 30, 45 minutes. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good feedback. And we're going to deliver the same thing today with your story. So I'm excited for that. Tell us what kind of business that you have first. Flexbyte is a customer financing fintech platform. So we provide businesses with a loan platform that they can provide their customers that either can't afford to pay or prefer to pay some other way than their cash or credit cards. And our difference that from the beginning that we set up is we provide our service to all size businesses, all you know type of selling. We're, we pretty much democratize this industry. Prior to us, the customer financing arena was isolated to certain verticals like retail sure. or medical, certain size businesses. And, we've, and we went in there and said, the small size, the new business, they deserve to have the same kind of weapons as everybody else. And so we have a platform of over 30 lenders in there. And if a business, whether it's an attorney, a home improvement company, it's across all verticals, doesn't make, it, doesn't make a difference. We go up to $100,000. If they have someone who just can't pay, they can turn them onto our platform, put an application in. Within seconds, they get you know, they get answers. Yeah, I love that. And I'm so useful, especially in today's environment, which you're talking about, obviously, it doesn't have to be just that they can't pay. It's just that maybe it's more advantageous to pay a different route. Well, I think people that- are very uncertain right now. The Between inflation and everything else, people are just not sure how their money is going to hold up. They prefer to compartmentalize their transactions. And the other side of it is I'm not going to sterilize it. We're finding our challenges too, because the lenders are pulling back a little bit. They're tightening the ropes there. They're not as certain that the people that they're looking at is really what they see. So it's a complicated environment. And that's why we just don't provide our clients with one lender. We provide them with 30 lenders because you just never know which ones are going to be hot and which ones are going to be cold at any given moment. Yeah, no, I definitely like that approach of, uh, guaranteeing for lack of better terms. I know you probably don't guarantee an approval, but (laughs) forbidden word. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But what you're doing is that you're, you're throwing the net out wide enough to make sure that if if this person's going to get approved, we're it's, we're going to find the opportunity and, and you're, and like, how can you blame a lender for tightening things up? Because man, there's a lot of people out there that, that don't 
that don't say well, and act right. And then they try to be somebody different. We've had this experience well, what, even inside of our own business. Well, as, as it was explained to me from a lender, when they're looking at somebody's credit score and it's a 700 credit score, which is under most circumstances is, a ver- is considered a very good credit score. They don't know sometimes if it's a 700 on the way down or 700 on the way up because people are in flux. We saw some of this during, during the initial outbreak of COVID where the lenders right. tighten up. My hope is that things will stabilize and lenders will get their footing and, and normalize. The great right. thing about our platform also is it's all soft credit pulls. So somebody could put an application in, no harm, no foul. If they don't like the offers, it's not as though it costs them anything. There's no harm to their credit report whatsoever. So we think we have a pretty significant uh, a solution for businesses to, to not only, from a practical standpoint, solve a sale, but also pull people in using utilizing financing. Because a lot of people yeah. these days that know they... They're going to make a major transaction and know they don't want to spend their money out there specifically looking for financing. Yeah. So it's, it's very important for businesses to, you know, to put it out front. Yeah, I love that. And actually, I had a guy on my podcast, I don't know, probably four months or so ago. And I think they're doing 25, 30 million. And he said one of the key things that changed everything for them is that they no longer presented cash offers, at pay for this HVAC system, pay for this coaching, pay for this, whatever it is, upfront, 15K, 50K, whatever the number, but they presented in financing first. Yeah, I mean, leading with that. Yeah, think about it. How many cars would be sold if the only option was give me $30,000 of your money? And that's and the right. car companies will lead with this car isn't 30,000, they'll change the paradigm. This car is $359 a month because people could wrap their brain around that. Yeah, 100%, exactly. Good stuff. Okay. I want to know before we get into the story of how the business started and your history, why at this level, obviously you've been successful. We, you made it through our interview process, but my question is why, like, why are you pressing even at this level? What's really got you out there fighting every single day for the next level? It's because I love it really. Listen, everybody, every business owner has their moments where they hate it. We all have, we all have that by about Monday at noon, you say, why did I get myself into? But overall, (laughs) I really love the business and I've created an environment, which is, it it didn't start out this way, but over the last number of years, it's become a legacy business. My son has been with me for five or six years. He's my head. He's my, essentially my chief technology officer. My daughter graduated from law school and I convinced her to come and join me rather than rather than become a lawyer and she's my chief operating officer. I made it all in the family and it's a lot, it's a lot more pressure that way too. I have a lot of households depending on it now, but yeah. I just love it. And I don't listen, things can happen. I don't foresee myself retiring ever. Hopefully I'll cut back a little bit, but I just yeah. enjoy it. It's I wouldn't do it otherwise. I've learned that that lesson the hard way. I resonate. I think a lot of listeners do with what you're saying, but to have you with your son and daughter in the business, I think is a lot of entrepreneurs dream really. And whether that works out or not for some, it's it. But my, my oldest daughter's almost nine and my youngest daughter is three months and three daughters and one son. And I'm thinking of every day, it's a growing obsession. How do I build them? They can build businesses or do real estate deals or whatever the scenario is. And, and so hearing you like doing the thing that I'm over here masterminding about is really encouraging. What would you say to a guy like me or a listener out there who's got younger kids and they're dreaming one day that we can do business together? Because that's really what I'm hoping for. Yeah, it's interesting because my son and I, I have fired him on three different occasions from other businesses, you know, so <laughs> we've had we had friction over the years. I'm big into sports and athletics. My daughter is the one that's big into sports. <laughs> 
and athletics. My son wasn't. He's technology and music, and that's yeah. great. But we just didn't see it. But my advice to parents is, you know, don't sweat over those things you think are important when a kid is nine years old, because at the end of the day, they're not going to be that important and just play it out. And now my son and I are best friends and we have a very close film. He lives right on the block from me. Our daughter lives not too far. I was as bad as anybody as I was out there watching my daughter playing tennis and she had to kick me off the sidelines once because right. I was too whatever. And I look back at it, what difference did that make? My biggest advice is just teach them what you know and be there for them. Just don't sweat those small things. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's so simple, but so profound is usually what I end up saying on this podcast, I think a lot. I The workings, the inning out, day in and day out, working with your kids as grown adults. Just give me 30 seconds on that. Like I just, I, that gets me fired up. I may be totally weird, but I just, I want to do deals with my kids. I don't know. Oh, it is so, I mean- First on my son, it is so cool because over the years, I have an engineering background and I'll go over that, but I graduated college as an electrical engineer, but that was many years ago. I've always thought like a, a tech person, but I just didn't have the skill set to, to do it. And my son did, yeah. came to my company and didn't have that either. He did a lot. He knew a lot of stuff, but he didn't know how to program. And over the last right. three years or so, he's really dove in and taught himself how to program. And it's great having somebody by your side where you come up with an idea and say, you know what, I'd like to see this happen. And he goes out and does it. And it's such a, yeah. it's such a great dynamic. And my daughter and I, she runs, she runs the people. And the thing I suggest to business owners is know your core competency and know what you're good at and what you're not good at. And one of the things I'm not that great at is managing people. I'm not good at training. I do it, you know, I, because I have to, but she has stepped in and taken that off of me. And as she also has a marketing background. So it's just been a pleasure. And not to say you don't have your moments because like you do with every employee where you mutter under your breath, but I, I like to put, I like to put people that I trust and really can rely on around me and what better source than your own kids. Yeah. I love that. Okay, let's talk about your history a little bit. Was this the first business? Was there a is there a track record of different businesses here? Give us an idea of your history here. Yeah, there's a go back on my from my childhood. I'm a an unlikely success story per se. My my parents were immigrants. They were refugees essentially. My father escaped World War II, escaped the Nazis. He lost two siblings. My mother wow. a few years later came to this country escaping the communists. And neither one of them had much education. And so growing up, I I had nobody really overseeing me when it came to education. I don't remember my parents ever coming going to a teacher parent conference or anything like that. They did their best, but that wasn't in their repertoire. They didn't know that was right. the thing that they had to do. And I was just a mediocre student. And yeah. fortunately, though, I grew up in a neighborhood, a block specifically, where there were a ton of kids and we were very competitive. And I made a couple of them my role models. And um, by the time I got to high school, even though I was still a mediocre student, I, I college was never in question for me. So I went to my guidance counselor, even though my grades were mediocre, my counselor said to me, you should consider a trade school. And I said, no, I'm going to. I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get into the engineering school. And I found the only, literally, I think the only engineering school in the country that would take me because <laughs> they weren't yet, they weren't yet accredited. So they couldn't, you know, the, the students that really deserve to go probably wouldn't have selected them. I got in, they got accredited during my freshman year and um, boom, He's you in. Know, to make a long story short, I graduated in four years. I think I was the only one of this beginning class to actually do that. And I had to, because my wedding day was on my graduation day. So I had to graduate so I could go to work. And yeah. in engineering is a, is a bear of a curriculum that teaches you a lot from the standpoint of problem solving and 
yeah. I went out and worked as an engineer for two and a half years. And to make a long story short, the company I was with at the end, I joined and they announced that they were going to move to Arizona. I was in Long Island at the time. And I just saw over a series of a year, HR bringing boxes over to these engineers that were with the company for 20 years and telling them to pack the box and, and leave. And I said, it doesn't sound like my story. I'm not really enjoying being an engineer. I'm not really that good at it. I'm probably a mediocre engineer. So I was looking for other things. And one night I was watching a, when I was married already, I was watching late night TV and I saw a infomercial on buying a house with no money down or little money down or whatever the topic was. and um, so I went out and said, you know what, I'm going to buy a house. So I went into contract to buy a house. I found a house and I looked for who to work with. And I found this father and son team. The father was a lawyer and the son was a recent Yale graduate who was running the mortgage company. So I said, you know what, I'll get two for the price of one and I'll, I'm going to get a mortgage through the guy. And I ended up becoming very close to, to the son. And because I wasn't happy as an engineer, when I finally got my walking, I was like literally the last one to shut the lights out for the company. I said, you know what, can I come work with you and see if I can contribute? I said, I'll tell you what, I'll spend a thousand dollars a week putting an ad into the, the New York Times and that would be my leads coming in for mortgages. And I did that and I ended up 75% of the business coming, the leads coming in with my leads. So they ended up taking that away from me and paying for the ad and just feeding me some leads. But I never went back to engineering. I just loved the service business. I loved finance. Ended yeah. up leaving, staying friends with him, but I left on my own and opened up my own mortgage company. Wow. And did okay with mortgages. And I did a few other financial things down the road. And then in uh, about 1995, I opened up a company called Edge Solutions. And what was happening at that time, and I don't know if you, you you're too young to remember the, the economy then, but the mortgage industry had started to, had, had really started to tighten up in certain aspects, the, the, okay. but the refinance boom was on. And what was happening is a lot of people were trying to refinance their houses, but they had debt because there was a big credit card explosion leading up to that. So they had all mm -hmm. kinds of debt, some charge-offs, judgments, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So while I was still doing the mortgages, I was I was I was getting on the phone and negotiating with the debt companies to bring the debt down so we can close the mortgages. Because otherwise, right. if you couldn't get the debt down, you couldn't close you couldn't close the mortgages. Yeah. So. I opened up this company in, in um, Edge in 1995 with the sole purpose of, you know what, I'm going to do this for mortgage companies. And yeah. so we did that. We started and we started, we became a debt arbitration company, essentially. Yeah. So, you know, and I built that business. It was growing little by little. It's always been, I've always had bootstrap businesses. And I went to a trade show in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and sometime in 1997. And three or four months later, I get a phone call from the senior VP of a bank who says he wants to buy the company. Wow. So I tell him, I'm not ready to sell the company. This is what I do. I like what I'm doing. He says, all right, how about this? How about if we invest in the company? So this was a bank. They weren't lending me money. They were investing in the company. I said, sure, you want to give me $500,000? I'll take $500,000. I took the money. We grew the company. We grew it from $500,000 of revenue. And we almost ran out of the money. We uh -huh. tried every iteration of everything we could possibly do. And then at one point we said, all right, we have this relationship with the bank. I think I can develop a system that that's mind-blowing to this industry where we can work with people that aren't necessarily getting loans. In other words, work with right. just the average person that's in debt that wants to get out of debt. So we ended up developing a system with the bank and 
that passed all state laws and everything else. And we ended up growing the company in a, within a very short time, rapidly from 500000 to $6 million a year in revenue, which is a lot of money when you're a service. You know, what, ha- what helped us terribly at that time is 98 was the start of Google. And basically, we could have had as many leads as I, I had. A, I had about 20 salespeople, and if they couldn't pronounce the name of the person of the lead they got, they would just crumple it up and throw it in the garbage. We had so many leads, and the leads were like almost at zero cost. It was almost nothing. Right. Yeah. So we grew the company. We had over 90 employees. And to make a long story, I'm probably longer than it should be already, but um, <laughs> it's, all right, it's good. In 2007, and we grew it. In 2007, I'm in a conference room, and this is going to be to the ashes part of the story. I'm in the conference yeah. room. I get a knock on the door from one of my employees. I'm in a meeting. I, it's an important meeting or so I thought. He goes, no, you got to come out here. I go out there and there's boxes at my door. Boxes, a box, two feet high, five feet wide of boxes. I look in, we were being sued by the FTC. Oh man. That's an experience nobody should ever have. You know, yeah. My heart sunk. And I, in a way I thought, now, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy because I think I knew this kind of thing could happen because we were one of the first in the industry to really open up that industry. And but there's a there was a lot of copycats in that in that industry, and some of them were not good players. They were coming from other industries, and the FTC had started going after some of those companies. And so I said, we're we're one of the more prominent ones. I think we're going to be a target. And lo and behold, we were a target. Now. Companies get sued all the time by the FTC. There, Google gets it. Microsoft has gotten it. All get it. They pay their millions of dollars of fines, and they continue on. And my background is I'm a battler. I'm competitive. So I said, "What can I do to fight this thing?" So I contacted through the help of a friend. I found an FTC attorney, and he go, "What can I do to fight this thing?" I know we didn't. I I know we didn't do anything wrong. And he goes, "Whether you did, whether you think you did anything wrong or not." the FTC can probably find something right. that you did wrong. And likely they and they likely did. And he said, you'd have to pay as a retainer a million dollars just to stay in the battle. Jeez. And that was a gut punch. I didn't have a million dollars. I was recently working on other projects. I invested my own money into it and everything else right. and have a million dollars. So I had to have the most heartbreaking meeting with my employees I ever had to have telling people that, they're going to be out of work. And uh, this was the end of the road for the company. It was a 12-year-old company. It certainly wasn't a fly-by-night company. Right. And even the people at the FTC, as they're going through their stuff, they're saying, you know what? We shouldn't have come after you because we had overboard. The thing I understand is people, and I knew right away we were dealing with individuals that are in distress, they're deep in debt. And I said, yeah, I want to make sure people never misunderstand what it is that we do. So the first thing is in the contract, I had a whole a one page of bullet points of that just described everything, the pros and the cons of what can happen as part of the strategy. I also had for every person that signed up, I had a recording system set up so that we had a verification call where we went over those steps and got them verbally to acknowledge it. At the end of the day, did we have salespeople that whenever you pay salespeople commission or right. vulnerable to yep. people trying too hard. Did I have that? Probably. But it was a damn shame because the people who came to us were not were never hurt until the FTC lawsuit because that's really when they lost their money because the FTC just froze all the accounts. And right. up until then, these people were having services done for them. But yeah. it is what it is. But it was I felt bad for the people. I felt bad for the employees. I felt bad for myself. For the first time, the day after I had to walk away from that business, I had to figure out what I was going to do. Yeah. Obviously it's such a, an emotional roller coaster. I'm sure of feeling like you made it really at that level. Like you said, 6 million in a service business and there's a lot of margin there and you're helping a lot of people. And so yeah. 
Yeah. What for you looking back now, what do you think was whether it was part of that or maybe even in your new your flex by endeavor? What was something that you did right back then? You pointed out that you were crossing T's and dot and I's, but as far as like building a business, someone's listening right now, they're not at a million dollars in revenue. They're looking for that one nugget that you're going to give to them. What was something that a good decision that you made in the midst of all that? Well, I made a lot of good decisions. The thing I, because also because we were partners with a bank, I felt like I had to go extra, the extra mile as far as really covering our butts. So I really did right. that. When we started selling, when selling really started taking off, I said, you know what? I know every one of these people should not be doing this. There's some people where you get applications, somebody has $3,000 of debt. For God's sakes, don't enter into a program that's going to destroy your credit for $3,000. At the same time, you have people that are so upside down, they really need bankruptcy. So I said, I'm, I made a rule right out, out of the shoot, and, and it cost us money. I said, you know what? I want to I want to decline 20% of the applications that come to us. I want to decline them. I want you to find the 20% that don't belong in this program and decline them because I know there's people that don't belong here and we were doing fine. We had no shortage of people that wanted to sign up for our program because people were in such dire straits. We did some good things in, in that regard. We did good things as far as marketing goes. We had some, like I said, Google, we, you know, we had it captured until it wasn't anymore. And after a while, people right. caught up to it and leads yeah, became course. more expensive, but we did some great things there. I had great people. I had great employees and I, the thing I like is at that time we had a, you know, it's like I said, at the peak, we had 94 employees. If I had a good person that just wasn't fitting what they were doing, I would try to find some other department to put them in because right. I'll take a good person that's trying and try to find a fit rather than somebody who's cocky and not a good team player who's competent because I just felt that was a thing I should do. But we did a lot of good things. And it's a good question because when you're in the middle of the rubble, it's really hard to appreciate it right. after it happened. And I say to this day for the three years afterwards, I had probably post-traumatic stress syndrome yeah. because it was a really traumatic experience. And what got me through it was my family. And I, such, I really did have yeah. it without being too cliche. My wife was great. She was part of the company too, but, and she got caught up in it, but she was great. And so I had a good, I had a good support system, but for a long time, it was hard to look at the good things that, that we did, you know, but yeah. I know we did good things. Oh yeah. You don't build a $6 million business on accident. No, so you my... can, you know what, seriously, you know, you can, because there were other companies that, that, that weren't doing the right thing. There's that sure, industry, sure. like I said, had become a wild west and while we weren't the right target. The industry probably was the right target was, at the right. time. And they did change the laws afterwards. And I have my own theories as to why they did it. The, as we all know, the financial crash was happening, was going to happen the next year. A couple of years beforehand, they changed the bankruptcy laws, making it harder to file bankruptcy. So I think they were cleaning up for the creditors a little bit from that standpoint. But you know what? You don't. You can make $6 million and not do the right thing. I totally believe that. But you can't stay in business for 12 years and not do the right thing. Yeah. That, that's the thing. So we were not a fly-by-night. We didn't open the year before with the sole purpose of making a killing. We fought our way to the top of that and just and stayed in there for 12 years. And we'd still be in business today if not for that. But yeah. the lesson I also did learn is, and you asked me early in the beginning of this interview, what keeps me going? I said, I love it. I really, and this is going to sound crazy, but after, after the dust settled and I had my pity party and I felt sorry for the employees, I was relieved because I'd come to realize that I really didn't enjoy that business anymore. And uh, the lesson I learned is, and I had become somewhat disengaged from it because of that. Sure. I started other side projects and because I really, whether it was the atmosphere of the industry or whatever, I just didn't really enjoy that business. I should have gotten out before, you know, before, and we had ways to get out, but I should have gotten out earlier. 
because if you don't love it anymore, if you don't feel you can stay engaged, you either have to find a way to stay engaged or get out. Yeah, no, that's so good because I, even in my own story, the pieces or the businesses that I've been involved with, they either keep my attention or I look, I'm looking for the next, the next thing. And I think that part of that is a purpose. And part of that is even early on, some of those businesses, even though I may or may not own them currently, or it was a product that maybe I didn't necessarily personally associate with, those were building blocks for my history so that I could do what I'm doing now and then beyond. So I think that the, all it's applicable. I'm curious now, like with your perspective of starting over, like literally. <laughs> I literally did have to start over. Yeah. And it wasn't over. And it wasn't overnight either. It took me a long time to pick up my footing, but yeah. Yeah. So I'm not only have you been successful, but then you started over and you've been successful again. And so we've talked about the good decision that you made. What was something that you did that you haven't repeated or that you specifically tried to not repeat to speed up time? Or what it was a mistake that you made that you learned from that you didn't have to learn again. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I think, as I mentioned, I think making sure that I maintain my interest and stay in my lane. I'm a firm believer in staying in my lane. And when I say that, it doesn't mean you can't work on other things. Sure. It's got to be towards a common outcome. And right. the thing that I didn't do was I went off the beaten path and left myself exposed. And I'm not saying that if I was engaged, it would have things would have happened differently because I think there was an agenda that there, but there were things that did happen while I wasn't fully engaged that. I wouldn't have put up with. But other than that, I, I try to stay in my lane now. I've had a lot of opportunities of people coming to me and say, hey, I got this, I got that. I got, you know what? I'm doing good. Let me stay in my lane. And I think that's the most important thing. Yep. 100%. I agree. What would you say just around decision-making is a process or do you have certain steps that you follow now that can, the listener can learn just from your, your vast experience? Yeah, I'm, I've always been in businesses, and this included where there's no price sheet. There's no standard. You can't go and say, all right, what does it If you're an accountant, you can basically see what the market bears and what, what pricing to charge. My whole thing has always been iterate, 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 and try to keep on sh changing and working towards zero um, friction. Because, you know, when you have a business that charges money and out of necessity, because we bootstrapped FlexBuy, we had to charge a setup fee. We had to charge a monthly subscription fee. We had to charge fees associated with the success. And it was a necessity. And we and some, and you have to pay, also charge some fees because you got to pay salespeople, right? So there's right. your marketing. And also we also have independent sales partners that bring us business. So we have to charge some fees in order to satisfy that ecosystem. Right. But anytime you charge fees, if you don't realize that you're creating friction, you're kidding yourself. Zero fees create zero friction. And there's downside to that as well. You want to have people with skin in the game, but too high fees will create a lot of fiction, friction. I'm a firm believer in iterating and then testing and iterating and testing until you zero in on, on, a, on, on the optimum point. And the other thing is, and I'll probably talk about this later again, but I'm, I also believe in establishing demand before you spend too much time on your product. When we started FlexSpy and I decided I was going to have a platform, I didn't know what the demand was going to be. Like I said, I was going after a sector of business out there that never had financing before I had to educate them. I didn't know what the utilization was going to be. I said, right. before I spend a ton of time on the technology side of this, let me find out the demand. So I had initially, I didn't have a great product, you know, and that was okay. I, because I burned through sales, but I didn't have a great product. We literally were like, I had my son 
entering in applications manually and, and you know, <laughs> making behind the scenes. But the thing I realized is no matter how bad the product was, I never had trouble selling it. It was demand out there. People, right. once businesses understood and they understood where their competition was, you know, there was a demand for the product. And once I once we had the demand, that's when we built, really spent a lot of time on, on the product. Yeah, I think that a lot of businesses can learn something from that. I can remember when I built my first sales course, it was version one, right? And I and for a lot of times I was very self-conscious about, you know, how it wasn't flashy or interactive or whatever in comparison to the market. And I had it's since been rolled into some other products that we do. And I have a buddy, he actually is a partner in one of my real estate businesses. And we're adding some salespeople and I wanted him to go through some just basic sales training and he's never done it. So I gave him the link to the course and he's going through it going, dude, this is incredible. Like just meaty information. And it's been years since I've like really gone back through the detail of it. And just hearing that years later when I was like, just so, oh, it's version one, it sucks. <laughs> it doesn't because, and the reality of it is that you're still serving the market. And of course, version two, version three, you got to keep, you got to keep, uh, you got to keep the thing rolling and, and the experience or the customer journey getting better and better, but get started is what I'm hearing you say first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's, listen, in this, when you're in the service business and whether it's doing what I'm doing or doing what you're doing, we're in the service business. It's either about having information that people, other people don't have or providing a convenience to, to what other people can do, just that they don't have the time or the energy to do it or the wherewithal to do it. Yeah. So it all, it all comes down to that. And I'm sure you were as smart Back in version one, maybe you have you probably have more experience now, but your intelligence level and the way to present was probably there for version one too. And it's funny you said that because I do a lot of live webinars and recordings and things like that, and I can never go back. I hate my voice so much. I will never listen to this podcast. I'll never <laughs> go back. I never go back and listen to my stuff or, or watch my stuff. And I really proofread. I sent it to my daughter just to edit yep. for me. But yeah, you're right. It, we all deal with it. The almost imposter syndrome of, ah, I, I don't like it or whatever. <laughs> but the reality of it is that it's delivering to the right people. It's delivering. Right. And so that's the confidence that we have to hold. Even if even in this podcast, there's going to be people who pass over and there's been people who were like, wow, Bob, thanks for sharing. And that's why we do it. It's not even yeah. about sharing necessarily. It's the same thing in business. It's like, we're not necessarily trying to serve everybody. We're trying to serve the right ones. Like you said, we got to get, we got to find the 20%, kick them out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. You got to find that sweet spot. You have to have thick skin in, in business and, and, and just know that as long as you keep expectations at the right level, it's like I've done after I was in between things after 2007. I spent two or three years going to a lot of uh, trade shows and conferences, really educating myself. I really spent a lot of time just trying to learn about some of the things I haven't been exposed to focusing on my other business. And you know, I usually went to those shows and I said, if I can learn one thing that makes a difference and meet one person that makes a difference, that's all I really need. I don't need, yeah. I don't need every single second to be mind blowing. I just need one thing to make a difference. Yeah. Love that. Okay. I'm going to transition here to the speed round. First question I want to know is in this business, this finance, helping your clients finance their clients. What's the one trackable metric? The one thing that you track forever and ever? Yeah, there's so many. I can usually gauge based on loan applications. And although because of the recent macroeconomic conditions that are out there, that's been a little bit, but I would say loan applications. If there's one, if there's one metric I had to look at. Yeah. Pipeline, baby. Either pipeline's full or pipeline's not full. <laughs> exactly right. 
Okay. Very good. What book would you recommend Bob for a six figure business owner? Or I know you're a big podcaster, so maybe it's a book or maybe it's a podcast. Yeah. I'm, you know what? I, it's been a while since I read a book. So I'm going to talk about two books. Okay. I mentioned a little bit of the lean startup by Eric Reese rice. Right. I'm not quite sure. How to, and yeah. it really taught me a lot because I had made the mistake before of not going with the minimal viable product. So okay. it taught me a lot. And the other for a total different reason was, um, uh, PayPal Wars. It's, a, it's an older book written not too long after PayPal was actually formed. And it, if you want to talk, if you want to understand the perseverance of a business, and the interesting thing about that was how PayPal went in with one idea and iterated to something totally different. It's yeah. just a fascinating book. Love that. We'll put both of those in the show notes. I'm all I'm all about reiterating and, or iterating and changing and pivoting, and not just for the sake of doing it, but until no. you find that that place where there it goes. You don't know what you don't know. Until you start taking that journey, you're going to come across obstacles. And the path from the start to where you got to be isn't a straight line. It's a, it's a jagged, it goes forward, it goes backwards, it goes sideways, it goes all different That's directions. Right. That's right. What do you think about intentionally networking or masterminding with other entrepreneurs? I think it's a great idea. And I did a lot of it. I don't do as much of it anymore. I used to do a lot of trade shows. I think COVID took away some of my chops when it came to live networking, but sure. I'm all for it. I like it. And it's just not a thing I get to do. I get to do a lot of back in the day when I used to do a lot of trade shows and I went back to my, the, when I was working with the mortgage companies and I looked back one day and I said, I got, I got 200 mortgage companies I'm working with. And I went back and to the origination of them and 75% of them came from trade shows, came from face to face. Yeah. So it's hard to, and I think we didn't have Zoom back then. Those kind of interactions make the same kind of inroads, but looking somebody in the eyes and having that kind of discussion cannot be replaced by email. So yeah, That's I think right. it's a great idea. That's good. The question around operations I'm going to throw at you is this, if you only had one hour each week to work on your business. Bob, what would you do in that one hour to successfully run your business like you do now? Yeah. 30 minutes, I would check my key metrics and I have a bunch of them between how many new businesses we're bringing in, the applications, the fundings, that kind of thing. Right. And then in the next 30 minutes, I would do marketing tweets to, to adjust based on what I just saw, what I just learned in, in, in the first 30 minutes. Love it. I love it. You got to know if the pipeline's full and then you got to go fill the pipeline. <laughs> exactly right. That's two. Yeah, exactly right. Spoken like a like a genuine entrepreneur. That's what we care about. It is is the train going to continue? But that train also serves serves our clients and our teams if it keeps going. So I can appreciate a good sales pipeline. Last question for you, Bob. Are you ready? Sure. If you could whisper in the younger Bob's ear, what would you tell him? I would say do the exact same thing you're about to do because it's interesting because I asked myself that question. Obviously, I went through my family. We went through a, a pretty bad time. But right. we're in such a great place now. If I could have changed anyone, if any one of those things would have been different, I don't know if I'd be right here where I am now. I think I'd go through the pain again and just end up where I am. But yeah. it, it, you always have to ask yourself, you like where you are. And if you like where you are, it wasn't a straight line. There's a lot of things, a lot of good things, probably a lot of bad things have to happen for you to get right. exactly to where you are. Yeah, I love that. Bob, you've been absolutely incredible here today with experience and inspiration and just the telling of the story, man, the rise, the fall, the rise again, so inspirational. How can the listener find you? Of course, if they need funding for their business or for their clients, or if they just want to reach out to you and connect with you as yeah, an website is flexby.com, F-L-E-X-X-B-U-I.com. Um, they can reach me. My email address is bobl at flexby.com. They can reach me in, on LinkedIn. 
just search for me. I'm there. And uh, those are the best ways. Perfect. I'll put it all in the show notes or my team will. And so that way they can easily connect with you. And Bob, we wish you nothing but success and blessing on your family. Again, I'm going to have to pick your brain over the course of time as we get to know each other better about working with your kids and all that fun stuff. Uh, I just think that's so cool. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening to Gathering the Kings. We hope you got a ton of value today and learned a thing or two about taking your business to seven figures and beyond. If you desire more and want a community around you to help you get there, I want you to go to gatheringthekings.com. That's gatheringthekings.com. And I want you to apply for our next Becoming a King 90-Day Intensive. We are extremely exclusive by nature as a group. What that means is that we're really wanting only the entrepreneurs who take their business and targets super serious to apply. So if that's you, you think you got what it takes to level up your business, I want you to go to gatheringthekings.com and apply. And we will see you on the other side.